welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 55 and um, very happy to be back on track with the show. Um, very excited to bring new guests, new perspectives and try to sort of build out this political landscape that often can feel like a wasteland. But, you know, we're you're not alone. I'm not alone. There are, there are millions of us. And the question is, how do we begin to build that? And that's part of part of what we're going to be talking about today. But before I can get into that, I just want to make my usual pitch for Counterpunch. Uh, great way to support Counterpunch is with a subscription to the print magazine. Um, if you look at the artwork just in the last six issues, I, I, I can't think of uh, another magazine that is coming out consistently with excellent artwork like that. And that's before you've even opened up the magazine. Then you get these great columns from people like Yvette Carnell from Breaking Brown. You get uh, columns from from people like Andy Smolsky, who was on the show. Yvette was on the show as well. Uh, of course, uh, usual great stuff from Jeff Sinclair, from all the usual suspects with Counterpunch. And um, I recommend it. I really appreciate getting that magazine, and I think you will as well. Of course, also you can uh, push us on iTunes, give us positive reviews, bring us to more listeners that way. Share us with your friends, your neighbors, your your bitter enemies, your most hated rivals, and everyone else you can think of. Uh, try to bring the show to as many people as possible. We're doing it for free. Uh, there are no ads. There is no you know there is no real money making scheme here. So hopefully we can help to sustain counterpunch if if the podcast is doing even partially uh, some of that then I feel tremendously gratified so uh, with all of that out of the way I want to turn to my guest this week I'm so happy to be able to uh, introduce Gloria Lariva onto the show Gloria is a presidential candidate for the party for socialism and liberation she is also on the ballot in California with the peace and freedom party with the liberty union party in Vermont and I think a handful of other uh, interesting ballot issues all over over the country, but Gloria is a a, a fighter. Um, she's always on the front lines. I've I've seen her, you know, personally when we've done you know protests for Venezuela or for various other issues. I consider her one of our great uh, fighters for social justice. Gloria Lariva, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Oh, thank you, Eric. I appreciate being on. So I want to jump right into the conversation with some, uh, I guess, as as breaking news as we could have on on a pre-recorded show like this one, uh, and that is the, I, I for lack of a better word, occupation that's happening around the Dakota Pipeline uh, and uh, the indigenous communities that and and their allies who are rising up in in defending their ancestral home. And I know you were recently there. I want you to give us a little bit of a snapshot what you saw, what brought you there, what the response was like, and, and, and what's going on there, aside from what we might read in the New York Times or The Nation or what have you. What did you see on the ground? Yes, well, on August 27th and 28th, I was able to go for the weekend, because I do work full-time, to the Sacred Stone Camp in North Dakota on the Standing Rock Sioux Tribal lands where, as you said, they are having the occupation for months now. And it was uh, stunning to drive there. First of all, what is noticeable is driving from Bismarck, the 60 miles, to the camp. Um, Within a few miles after you leave Bismarck, there was a police blockade, and it was built to look like they had to keep people from ramming through the blockade. So they had these big metal, uh, I don't know what you call it, structures as if they were trying to stop people from running through. And they claimed it was to protect and to keep the peace for the community, presumably non-native, that is along the road. So you had to detour quite a ways. But getting to the camp, it's, it's enormous and it's growing. At that point, there were many dozens of tents and teepees, but also six different, uh, kitchens hewed out of wood, Uh, a very, very large one and a big circle where people gather and major campfires all over. It's it's an impressive camp with a great deal of solidarity of, it's no no exaggeration to say, at least 100 Native nations from all over the country, whether it's Alaska all the way down to Southern California, 
down to Florida, up into Connecticut and way up north. It, it's unprecedented in the United States since the gatherings of nations in the 1800s and Wounded Knee in 1973, which was a major 71-day um, stand down with the U.S. military uh, that was led by American Indian Movement. So this is unprecedented because it is at a time when the world has become so much more aware of the environmental destruction. So the call that the Standing Rock people put out uh, was greatly, greatly received. When I was there, uh, the first Saturday in the evening, uh, one of the Native nations near Bismarck brought enough food to feed 2,500 people. And it was so great because people waited in line through, you know, being served. Um, the people from that tribe were like cooking and cooking for hours. I was hopping on the kitchen line. And so much patience and solidarity and love. I've, I interviewed many people, a lot of women with their kids, uh, grandmas, and they were all talking about how uh, living in North Dakota in different towns or South Dakota who live in nearby, they camp on the weekends. If they have to go to work, they return. But two sisters said, we come back here as much as we can because we love it. It's like we don't want to leave. It's, um, it's really touched people's hearts and their whole heritage and legacy as fighters. One interesting uh, comment that that, uh, that you just made that I think a lot of people might not be um, you know appreciating the scope of what's happening there when you're talking about uh, indigenous communities, indigenous peoples from all over the country, many of whom I mean you know aside from being aside from being Native Americans don't share many you know qualities and and the fact that they're coming together and building not just an occupation but what seemingly a movement, perhaps in its uh, infancy, but a movement nonetheless. I think that this is quite significant, especially if you see it uh, against the backdrop of things like the movement for black lives as well, which is also uh, still in its early stages. And the fact that these things are happening concurrently, I think, is an indicator of something much greater, something much more significant that a lot of people are missing. Yes, and... It, it kind of reminds me a little bit about the 60s and the 70s when uh, the black civil rights movement and black liberation movement, of the, which really was reached its zenith in the 50s and 60s, 70s, uh, inspired others. It inspired people in the American Indian movement, Dennis Banks, uh, Clyde Bellacord, and others who founded it in 1968 in Minnesota, of Native people, the Chicano movement, the Brown Berets, La Raza Party, uh, La Raza Unida, and many others, the women's movement and the lesbian gay movement at that time. So we're reaching an era that is going to go even further than that. There's more consciousness in, in all the struggles. I would say more unity and uh, an understanding that we are all in this together, that Black Lives Matter, Occupy, Fight for 15, everything we've seen in the last especially five years since Occupy, now we do see, as you said, the Native American struggle. And there have been a few environmental struggles, uh, sovereignty issues that Native people have been fighting for decades, whether it's the, um, the Black Hills and the U.S. stealing you know, millions of acres for the mining, uh, which is very sacred, but has been uh, a difficult struggle. Just recently, the Oak Flat land in southern Arizona, where the federal government traded off federal forest land, which is really native land, for the Resolution Copper, which plans to mine 7,000 feet deep for gold. And it's going to be so destructive where they take out millions of gallons of water, which is so scarce there anyway. That has been a losing battle. But now, what took place on September 9, when the federal judge ruled on behalf of the Dakota Access Corporation conglomerate that was 
in, in determined to keep building the pipeline. But then as soon as they ruled, the judge ruled negatively against the Native nations, steps in the federal government, three federal agencies that says, no, this has to stop for now, and admitted that the process of the Bureau of Land Management, the uh, Army Corps of Engineers, other federal agencies that have so willingly, so quickly, without any consultation, and against the wishes of Native people who are on so much pristine and important land, but that has resources below, mines, um, minerals, and so on, they are saying now, we have to step back and think about this process and, you know, I'm putting my words in, not so quickly hand over land to the corporations. Uh, I don't know that that's going to resolve completely favorably, but it's a huge victory in showing the power that people have when they put their bodies on the line and the power and unity, uh, the historic development that has taken place for all the Native nations, which is really one nation. Yes, indeed. Um, one other thing that I, I, strikes me in, in watching the coverage of this and in seeing this all unfolding is, uh, well, actually, you mentioned in your earlier comments this fact that there is so much solidarity pouring in, you know, but one other sort of aspect of that is the fact that there is a, a, a connection between what the indigenous communities are doing around the Dakota pipeline and what we see in, place, in, in a place like Ecuador, where those indigenous communities for decades were ravaged by companies like Texaco and Chevron and are trying to push back, although it's an uphill legal battle. Um, I've covered that on this show as well. And this connection, I think, is very important because what we're talking about is not something that is necessarily unique to the United States or unique to North America. This is the kind of environmental destruction, but also uh, um, repression and oppression and exploitation of indigenous communities. This is happening all over the world. Yes, and the, the mineral, the mining, the oil, the gas, uh, coal mining, uh, extraction, all of this is accelerating. Uh, the, the search for diamonds, for the gold especially, it, let's say in our hemisphere, uh, I'll talk about this hemisphere, where as you said, Ecuador, or Peru, or Mexico, these are, and Guatemala. There are films made about each of these countries where Canadian and U.S. firms are just robbing the land, digging up destroying the economy, stealing very scarce water. And uh, it, it's, it's accelerating, as I said. It's, it's, it's a, and, and the um, destruction, the leaking of the oil, the gas, the methane release from gas uh, extraction is very, very damaging to the environment. And so indigenous people are on the front line. But it affects everybody in the end. And we have to understand that. That's why I think that the solidarity by people at Standing Rock, uh, not just of Native people, but many others are being inspired. I, I'm getting calls from everywhere, people saying, can you give me some advice on how to go? I want to go. I'll fly. I'll rent a car. I'm, I'm getting a caravan together. I was in Oakland on September 12th for the celebration of Leonard Peltier, his resistance to... 40 years of cruel imprisonment and people were already talking about gathering up and leaving. This is going to last possibly months more. Who knows how long it could end up being a permanent site of inspiration for others. Um, it's going to evolve, I think on a much profound, profound level. I want to also mention Leonard Peltier because that night on September 12th, which was his 72nd birthday, uh, there was a showing of the, uh, it's a pretty old film, Warrior. It has uh, extremely moving interviews with him and his family throughout his comrades in that struggle of American Indian movement. And he was, with the others in AIM, defending the Pine Ridge Reservation members from the stealing of their land, from the mining, from the extreme poverty and the repression that the FBI had uh, armed the 
tribal leadership with, which led to dozens of deaths, that's why Leonard Peltier is in prison. Not for the deaths of two FBI agents. The FBI raided that land. They invaded it, and there was a firefight. His other brothers who were on trial were exonerated by an all-white jury. But because Leonard was able to escape the encirclement of the FBI, he was falsely then extradited from Canada, and he's paying a price ever since then. And here is Leonard in prison for fighting for the land and for the people, and we're back here to 40 years later fighting for the land and the people, the water, the air, you know, the plants and life. And it's why I'm, I'm mentioning, Leonard, that we have to fight and demand of President Obama that he give him freedom in the months that he has left. And to pardon other political prisoners, because it's really gross to see him at the end of the year, you know, Thanksgiving, Turkey Day, to be pardoning a turkey. And maybe it seemed quaint before, but it's a cruel, cruel kind of joke on people who've spent decades in prison uh, as political prisoners. Yeah, and in, and in many ways, those those uh, political prisoners are, uh, to a large degree, sort of the conscience of our movement. You know, you think of Mumia Abu-Jamal, you think of Leonard Peltier, you think of Russell Maroon Schultz, and, and, and many, many others who uh, have paid, essentially, with, uh, with their lives, or certainly with decades of their lives, for the fact that they were leaders, that they took a stand, that they have uh, essentially become martyrs to a social justice movement. And uh, to demand freedom for them is the, you know, the, the, the minimum that we could do. Oh, yes. And it's great to see so many young people in the movement of uh, Black Lives Matter and other social movements have taken up their cause. Uh, our brothers and sisters in prison need that. And I think it's giving us much more hope. Let's remember that the Cuban Five uh, spent 16, uh, 13 to 16 years in prison. Three of them originally had life without parole uh, for defending Cuba peacefully against U.S. terrorism. Gerardo, at the end, had a double life, and he was freed by an international movement, a movement that I was part of with my comrades, too, in the United States. And finally, Obama release them in, in a somewhat of a trade with the American who was in, in a Cuban prison for bringing in surveillance equipment. But I just say that the movement was what freed them. Uh, we're also fighting for um, Chelsea Manning, who just on September 13th won a victory. She declared that she was no longer going to accept the abuse. I mean, the military wouldn't even let her grow her hair long much less have a gender transition surgery, they, they ordered her to have her hair cut like a man, short, military style. And so she went on a hunger strike, and there was an emergency call for, for, for pressure on the government. And just within a few days later, the military said they will agree that she will be allowed to have gender transition surgery. And that's a powerful victory for, for her, for the Cuban Five, and for um, Oscar Lopez Rivera, who also has a movement behind him, all the political prisoners, as well as hundreds of thousands in U.S. prison who should be released immediately, and not just released into the street with $100 and a bus ticket, but released with an income or a job placement, training or education. All of the things that you need to live, they need that for being so uh, wrongfully imprisoned for charges of uh, economic crimes or other, even violent crimes that, they, that have been resolved. All of the uh, prison population needs immediate rights restored and extended that never existed before, but also many, many, many released. And a president could do that. Uh, he could. I don't know that he would, but he could. Um, and it's certainly something to demand. But I want to return to something that you were kind of alluding to, and it's actually exactly what 
what I'm oftentimes talking about. Matter of fact, I think uh, I had exactly the same conversation with uh, your running mate, Eugene Perrier, uh, a number of months ago here on this program. And that is the question of the uh, uniting of struggle. So we've seen sort of the atomization, I guess you could call it, or single issue kind of movements uh, all across the board on the left for, for decades now. And uh, many of us, and I'm certainly not claiming that this is somehow an original idea of mine, many people have talked about the absolutely essential uh, unification of movements, uniting of struggles into one cohesive, coherent, and most importantly, organized movement. And while that may seem like a pipe dream, in in my view, looking at what's happening across the country and around the world right now, we are beginning to see some semblance of that. So exhibit A would be um, the, uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and their solidarity with the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement against Israel and Israel's occupation of the Palestinian lands and oppression of Palestinian people. That, in, in, uh, in addition to that, the Black Lives Matter movement having an appearance recently with the indigenous communities around the Dakota Pipeline as well, bringing these different movements together and understanding that it really, in many ways, is part of the same larger struggle. Now, I want to get your take on that, not only whether or not it's a good idea, but most importantly, are you seeing other evidence of that happening? And if so, what does that tell us about the trajectory of political struggle? I agree very much with what you're saying and what Eugene has been saying, which is one uh, major message of his in the campaign and in the struggle in general. Nobody can win on their issue or struggle alone. We have to unite our forces because uh, this divide and conquer of the absolutely disgusting, misogynistic, racist, anti-Muslim divide the working class and pretend to appeal to part of the working class, uh, he wants to appeal to to white workers, um, Trump, on the basis of racism. But it's so interesting that he claims to fight for them to like so-called make America great. But when you when he was asked about raising the minimum wage, he was not for any increase. He said, "Let them work harder." What a disgusting attitude uh, from a very rich man who's never worked, who only exploited and robbed people and refused to pay the Polish undocumented workers that he hired. So I think that we have on the one hand the politicians continuing the divide and conquer, and on the other hand in this movement that uh, is becoming more and more perceptive to the public is unifying. I'd say that not only is the Black Lives Matter movement of black youth uh, expressing solidarity with the Palestinians, with the native struggle of Latinos, also expressing solidarity with Palestinians, Native Americans expressing solidarity with others. Uh, But it's also that the working class as a whole, who are primarily young people, but others as well, who are in their own battle, whether it's the right to uh, have education or struggling to pay their debts at the same time of going to school or work and pay the rent. Anybody who is a worker, working class, or a student, or unemployed in the U.S., who doesn't have an inheritance and can't live off someone else's wealth, I think more and more people are waking up to the idea that when someone's struggle is moving ahead and making change, it helps all of us. I've seen in the demonstrations that I've been here in San Francisco where I live, the protests uh, for Mike Brown, for uh, Alex Nieto, Andy Lopez, and other victims like Mario Woods of uh, police brutality, police killings, or any other police killings in the U.S., you see not only black and Latino youth, but a lot of white youth who are becoming inspired by the fight and deciding that they are going to stand up against racism as well. This is something that I think is very, very powerful. I was in Baton Rouge in uh, early July when uh, Alton Sterling was assassinated by the police. I went there about three days later, and there were hundreds of black youth, very young, uh, probably never had been in a protest before, and they were 
gathering together. They saw each other on the social media, called out in front of the police station. Uh, extreme repression by the police. Hundreds of cops of, of state, local, county determined to, to arrest them. They, they arrested me because I happened to be taking pictures and about 100 others that night. But a lot of uh, white youth started to drive in from New Orleans, uh, from all around Baton Rouge. And I think it was fantastic. Um, cheering each other in jail when the cops were coming down on someone, the sheriffs. Black and white youth were like shouting out for each other. And in those struggles, people form a bond that can't be broken. Because in the 60s, I became politically radicalized in college in 1972, uh, which was a kind of like the waning period of the student movement, which really reached its height in 1968. And the taste that I got in being involved in building takeovers at my school, uh, learning that I got into school because of the affirmative action that was won by black students who had occupied the campus four years before me. And my own involvement in that, um, I, I never lost that feeling of the power of struggle. Or when I organized a union drive at the age of 23 in Rochester, New York, Fairport, New York, the suburb, of women newspaper workers, uh, a couple of them, one woman in particular was extremely racist extremely racist and extremely abused by her husband. But she was having her own battles within her family. And when our union drive took up, and I said openly, I'm a communist to my workers. And this was 1978. And they were kind of shocked. You know, I just say this because in that time, there was a lot of anti-communism, anti-socialism in those days. The fog of of the witch hunt and the Cold War was still upon us. But in my months of working with my co-members, seeing what I stood for, uh, all of us exploited. And one day they said, call the union, Gloria, call the union. And in those months of struggle, that woman, Dorothy, my co-worker, became an anti-racist. She became the most militant pro-union person. And she just fought her husband. And made it, and pushed him back, and to me that was a, a real life experience of what the struggle does to change people's consciousness, and why I believe, although Trump has been able to get a foothold among uh, a large group of people in this country, a major section of the working class, plus the rich who are behind him and the middle class, I think we could, we need to break that. We have to break a lot of people away from that with our struggle, our visibility, our insistence on fighting for our rights, for everybody, that no one's going to be left behind. Yes, indeed. Well said. Um, a lot more to discuss, but we are just about ready for a break. So why don't we take a break? And um, on the other side of the break, I want to talk, you, you mentioned struggle. We talked a lot about struggle. That's a very important S word. But on the other side of the break, I want to talk about that other very important S word that may be uh, may be prepared to make a make a um, you know an appearance here on the political scene. Um, so anyway, uh, stick with us. I will continue the conversation with Gloria Lariva on the other side of the break. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We will be right back. No, no. Jumping out of the wings 
Here on Counterpunch Radio, I am chatting with presidential candidate Gloria Lariva of the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Um, if you're in California, Peace and Freedom Party on the ballot. If you're in Vermont, Liberty Union Party. And uh, do make sure that you check with PSL to see where else they're on the ballot, where they're still trying to get on the ballot, and uh, do what you can if uh, you are so inclined. Now, Gloria, before we went to break, we were talking a lot about the these various struggles, the importance of uniting these struggles, the uh, symbolic but also uh, tangible political significance of them. But I want to shift gears slightly and ask a little bit of a different question, uh, still about the struggles, but I want to know, based on your experience on the ground with the indigenous communities and the occupation in, in North Dakota, with the people in Baton Rouge, with people in San Francisco, I want to get a sense of this. How much are these people really becoming committed to building a true socialist movement, a movement for socialism, one that is beyond just, you know, uh, becoming a member of this party or that party or whatever, beyond the usual kind of obstacles that we on the left face, because I see I see multiple crises, almost, you know, a, a confluence of crises, whether it's the climate crisis, the global economic crisis, a potential world war crisis, particularly particularly in a uh, Hillary Clinton presidency, uh, certainly with her warmongering against Russia. These things, to me, uh, I think push to radicalize people and to normalize things like the idea of socialism. We see poll after poll indicating how, what young people's attitudes are towards socialism, majority being favorable, majority having a negative opinion of capitalism. How is that translating into into our social movements, or is it translating into the social movements? And what are the next steps in order to build a, on top of that? That's a very good question, and one that I and I'm sure a lot of other people think about constantly because you can wake up any day. I mean, I wake up a lot with many thoughts in my head about um, when is a major uprising in this country going to happen of not just the people in the streets now, but of many more people who have never even marched before. Yeah, exactly. Who are willing, who, who, will, who will finally realize, awaken to the, to, the, to the knowledge that the government is the enemy, is their enemy. And it's that, um, that great barrier in trying to find some trust in the government trying to find some answer in the elections because the electoral arena, the, you know, the capitalist elections, as you know, especially the elections in this country, are uh, a real, it's, it's a trap. It's a mechanism for control. It's a major mechanism for control. The media uh, censoring all truth about the effects of the U.S. wars and occupations. I've, I've talked a lot about how when I was young and we could see on television live coverage from Vietnam and the bodies and the, the horror of the Vietnam War, 
that that's what helped to contribute to a great anti-war movement along with the draft. And now we don't see any of that. It's been 25 years of war. And the only thing that people have seen from the war in Iraq, the occupation, was what the movement did in creating the alternative media, which has reached only a small percentage of people. And I, I, I think that we have to keep on having the persistence to reach as widely as we can, to be as creative as we can, that when we're in these struggles, marches, demonstrations, movements, that we try to broaden that understanding among the people involved. I think, for example, what was taking place in Occupy, um, it kind of was limited. It was a great, great development, and we were involved in that in many cities, you know, actively camping out, actually, and defending against police attack. But there was also this idea, a sort of an anarchistic view that there's no leadership, we just do this mass kind of decision-making. And that was one of the problems, one of the shortcomings. Absolutely, you, you, you 100%. Have to, you have to have an organized movement. Yep. I, I went to uh, Ferguson with one of my young members the first night that we got there when curfew was announced by the governor. And uh, I was so impressed to see that. You know how in uh, I live in San Francisco where the – baseball and football teams have won championships and basketball they've won championships and so the thousands and thousands of people come out spontaneously and all night driving up and down the street and sometimes i think boy i'd love to see people do that for a pro for a struggle <laughs> you know the yeah. average people yeah that, hap that happened in ferguson and that night when the governor said curfew tonight and instantly the the masses older younger children everybody got in their cars driving up and down the streets defying saying we're going to defy the curfew and uh that was a, a very telling moment i believe that's going to come on a much broader basis will it happen if there is another bank failure which is going to happen another housing bubble burst because the same practices of the banks of the real estate developers wiping out housing that's affordable, creating skyscrapers, whether it's San Francisco or Brooklyn, they're creating a glut. And the bankers are doing the same theft, uh, fraudulent practices, accelerated even before, uh, even more than what took place in 2008, 2007. And if they demand a bailout or insist that we pay the price for their crimes, I don't think people are going to be so accepting. I think we're reaching a point where people are going to be fed up on a much broader scale. But, the, but the, what you need is organization, unity of organizations. But, for example, we always say in my party, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, we never know what crisis will come, whether social, economic, or even military. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's all these nuclear accidents. Just sadly... Uh, possibly happening in this country or war like you said a world war that the u.s is going to be responsible for they're building up for it tactical nuclear weapons that they plan to use at some point uh, what crisis will finally make people realize we've had it with this government we're going to fight it to, to to win our rights to defend the people and to say no more war well you need an organization to help provide that leadership and this idea, this kind of anarchistic idea that, oh, we're against a vanguard. Well, use whatever word you want, but you need organization. The ruling class is organized. We need to be organized. I couldn't agree more with that, frankly. Um, it's a fight I've been, I've been fighting a long time, including at Occupy, and it was not so well received uh, down on Wall Street. But um, I want to I wanna push back a little bit, though, because I don't want this uh, you know, to seem... <laughs> it's funny that I'm going to say this on the on the radical left, but I don't want it to seem like we're 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 too confident because I think we have a lot of things that we need to address before we can feel like uh, you know really that 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 uh, we're we're building a real opposition. Number one is, and I talked about this with Eugene a number of months ago as well. 
the problem on the left is so deeply sectarian and that is and i mean i can i'll speak to that just you know for full disclosure i'm not a member of any party uh so i can't i'm not speaking for any organization just as my own personal perspective on it having traveled that uh landscape it's so sectarian that seemingly um sometimes these things feel like they degenerate into turf wars more than uh, real movement building. And I've seen that on so many issues. And, in, you know, we see it now on uh, international issues, whether it was what position to take on Libya or on Syria or what have you. When you look at the crises that we're facing, I wonder, can we afford that kind of sectarianism anymore? Because I think that the stakes have never been higher than they are right now. And I feel like, and I, I've said this, listeners know I, I've said this many times, I feel like we're on the verge, uh, you know, on the on the edge of the cliff, so to speak. And so I want to get your take on that. Um, how do you approach that issue, that problem? Do you see it as a problem? And is there a way, either organizationally or in a more abstract sense, where we're going to be able to bring all of these disparate groups together and form a legitimate left, a real left? You know, I, I, a lot of people ask that question, and I've answered that question many times. Young, new people to the movement would very earnestly ask frequently, why doesn't all the left get together so that you're all bigger and able to do more? And I say this, if we all got together, the left as it exists, and I'm talking left parties, as we exist, we would be, and I usually make a little motion of a small circle, we would be this big. Yep. From this little tiny thing to this big. Yep. It's not big enough. That's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is overcoming what I've explained about the media blockade, about the conservatizing effect of 30 years of setback, of workers being on the defensive, of unions being on the defensive, of, of the, you know, uh, legacy of anti-communism, all the things that have been obstacles of racism, the division of the working class. Those, there are many more things that are, are, are the challenges than just sectarianism. I'm against sectarianism. Now, what does it mean? I mean, we could all say we're anti-sectarian. I, I think there's a difference between uh, an organization uh, keeping you out of a movement because they are interested in their, finance, their funding or their position or, you know, career, uh, what do you call it, aspirations. You know, we see that sometimes, especially among NGOs, uh, people who don't want to have radical groups involved. But among the left ourselves, there are matters of principle. You brought up the issue of Syria. Uh, we were one of the very, very, very few organizations. Sadly, I think since the... Uh, Maybe the Iraq War, but especially with Yugoslavia, the U.S. imperialists were very, very sharp in how they sh and how they framed their aggression against Yugoslavia, particularly as it reached uh, the final war uh, in 1999, the NATO-U.S. bombing, in which a great part of the U.S. left uh, actually supported in in an uh, effectively supported the U.S. aggression because they claimed to be for Kosovo. Well, in my organization and my work and the work that I was involved in, we understood it to be the final smashing and tearing up of the last socialist and progressive country that existed in Eastern Europe. And we've seen the result of that. Uh, and, and there had to be a matter of taking a stand on it, on the issue of Palestine, uh, after 9-11 and the Answer Coalition that I'm also a part of, we insisted that the issue of Palestine had to also be in the forefront when it came to war in the Middle East, that the Palestinian people have a right to be represented, their struggle to be represented, at the same time that we worked for unity with other coalitions. And it was 
a matter of principle for us. We felt that the working class people, the people in motion, uh, we had marches here in San Francisco, for example, of 300,000 and more in the months before the 2003, the March 2003 final U.S. Uh, commencement of the new war against Iraq. Yep. And we had in the forefront with the other banners, Palestine. And you didn't have the, the masses falling away they learned from the speeches. They learned from the demands. They learned from the presence of Palestine. And that didn't affect or weaken in any way the struggle. And others fought us on that. To me, that's a matter of principle. You, 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 can't, you can't be afraid to stand up to many of the things that the U.S. government has very skillfully been able to uh, lie to people about. Weapons of mass destruction, the sanctions. Um, I was involved in the anti-war movement when the first war against Iraq, the Gulf War, was taking place. And there was another coalition that insisted on forming separately because they supported the sanctions. They thought of it as a way to keep the U.S. from carrying out war if the sanctions worked. Well, sanctions was genocide. Yeah. It was preparation for war. So I, I, it takes a long time to talk about this, Eric. I... I I don't like interviews that say, well, oh, it's really great what you're doing and how will you do this and how will you do that? We need to challenge each other. We need to ask the tough questions. I ask myself tough questions every day because we know the reality of the absolute urgency of climate change being reversed. But it can't happen by electing a new president. It has to happen by a revolutionary struggle against the oil, gas, companies, uh, really a change in the system. It's urgent. You, you, can't, you can't expect all the companies that produce plastics, that produce the uh, nitrogen fertilizer, many, many firms that are so responsible for the environmental catastrophe in Louisiana against poor people, especially black people, all these factories spewing out chemicals uh, that is permanent destruction. Uh, you can't do that by simply having reforms or that kind of thing. We, uh, my struggle, along with those of my comrades, and hopefully you know, millions in the future, is the understanding that capitalism is the problem. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I just want to make something clear when I in asking that question, I'm not suggesting that you paper over the uh, issues of principle. Obviously, I have uh, earned many an enemy over my very fierce defense of Gaddafi in Libya, over my uh, position on Syria, over a number of other issues, which is fine. I mean, that's not that's not the point. My point was simply to get at this question. And I want to get your take on it, you know. Um, if we're thinking about Rosa Luxemburg or somebody like that, you know, and her formulation of the mass strike and, and, and what the moment, what the historical moment means when that upsurge happens. And I think that, you know, and I'm being very reductive here and, and oversimplifying, obviously, uh, but basically seizing that moment and to seize that moment requires exactly what you were saying. It requires organization. It requires requires uh, mobilization, it requires a cohesive uh, movement and a coherent strategy, and that is something that is very, very difficult, especially when you have the kind of uh, political landscape that we have now, and my fear is that what we see with somebody like Trump, and especially the movement around Trump, not so much Trump himself, but the movement that is coming together around him is that the enemy is organizing, the enemy is mobilizing, and I fear that we're not, or we're not doing it fast enough, or if we are doing it, maybe are there ways that we could be doing it better? Those are the questions that I think are imperative to be asking right now while we still have the luxury of asking them. Well, that's a very fair question. And I would say that we have to keep working on being as creative as we can, responding immediately when there is a crisis in the community to join in solidarity, 
to help bring people in from the other struggles that we're involved in, to help anyone in any certain struggle understand that they have to also be involved to support others, to unify. Um, I, I don't really see uh, a problem, a sectarian problem, a problem of sectarian being, the sectarianism being so major. I don't really do, I don't really think so. Uh, let me just go back to the issue of anti-war. When the struggle in Syria took place, and many in the Arab movement in the U.S., and also anti-war forces were, to my mind, on the wrong side, you know, for my organization, uh, supporting the overthrow of the, of the Syrian government, they just didn't appear to the protests. We and others organized demonstrations to oppose U.S. intervention. I think that's a main principle, is opposing U.S. intervention. I think people can get behind that. We can have our differences. When, for example, when, when you have a coalition, you have to allow people to have their points of view when they speak. You also have to share in the responsibility of building. And if you have the right kind of approach to the movement to say, let's work together, we can share the platform, we can share the responsibility, we can have our differences of opinion, we can debate them publicly, I think it's healthy. I think it's healthy what's taken place. Um, there have been some setbacks and some weaknesses in the movement that didn't respond sufficiently to the U.S.-NATO bombing in 1999 didn't understand sufficiently what was taking place with Syria and Libya. But I think people are starting to realize the mistakes in that, you know, misinterpretation of what was taking place. I, I, I really do have hope, Eric. I have hope for the future. I think our pr problem comes when people start depending on the U.S. mechanisms of control, like elections. That's why we're involved in it. Uh, speaking of sectarianism, when Bernie Sanders was running, I think the right approach was not to say, oh, he's an imperialist, he's voted for wars before. Yeah, he has. But what we were doing was, the, the, the proper thing to do was to approach the supporters of Sanders to see that these were people who were coming into motion for the first time, who were waking up to the progressive ideas of healthcare, education, anti-war, and now millions are being left where they want more and they want to continue on that battle. You, 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 couldn't, you couldn't rightfully disregard them. That's sectarianism. You couldn't disregard them. And we have to look at that as part of the movement as well. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, I think that um, the question that I want to return to um, has to do with socialism as an idea and its presence in um, the various social movements. You know, there's this, there's this, uh, you know, talk about whether or not Black Lives Matter was going to take an explicitly anti-capitalist position. There was a debate, I know, internally within the Green Party as to whether they were going to take an explicitly anti-capitalist position. Obviously, the, the, the whole Bernie Sanders thing, although I don't know whether anybody could make that argument for Sanders himself, but at least the normalization of the word socialism, I think, was something significant and 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 of note. So I wanna I wanna get your take on it in the last few minutes we have here. Your experiences in these social movements are they are they truly headed in an anti-capitalist direction on a programmatic level, or is anti-capitalism or pro-socialism or whatever just the veneer, just the language lacking the substance? How do you see? How do you read that? I think that there is movement going forward. I remember for the um, the movement that first arose in in our modern time of this century, the anti globalization movement uh, with the World Economic Forum protests in two thousand, later in two thousand two, the battle in Seattle, which was a you know a major struggle in Quebec, all those protests, uh, the, world, the world social forums in Brazil and India and 
Venezuela that took place. Those were early movements that did not have a pro-socialist orientation by the leadership. Uh, if you remember, they were uh, anti-capitalist, but they were, like, for example, in the World Social Forum of Brazil, you couldn't be a party and, be re and, and participate. You could only come in as a mass movement. That's really anti-communism. That's anti-socialism. That was strictly like anti-capitalism, let's reform the system. I think we've come much further than that. I think now you find people talking about socialism and that uh, the, the people in struggle, Black Lives Matter, um, Native people, everyone doesn't have a problem with hearing about socialism. In fact, I think they're welcoming it. It's early. Uh, they haven't said, I'm going to join a party now. Some are. Uh, I, t I can tell you that right now is that a lot of youth are starting to join my party, for example. I think that there's a definite acceptance of socialism. I, when I was in Standing Rock. You are talking about a community that has said we were not consulted, but it's more than that. It's not that they just want the government to sit down with them and say, okay, you can move the pipeline this way or that way. You can build it stronger. They say our water is for generations. We have to live. Water is life. And when I asked people, I, I asked one woman in particular, I said on video, I said, but the oil companies say that it will provide jobs and provide the energy that people need. And for, she thought for a second, said, we need water. Without water, there's no life. And these are activists who I spoke with who are for the shutdown of the oil companies. Because when I was expressing those things that I think are ultimately needed, that we have to get away from uh, the, the oil uh, so much production being based on oil in, in every aspect of our lives, plastics, everything, you name it. People were saying, yes, we have to stop that. You're talking about native people who are much more for uh, as stewards of the land. That is a pro-socialist potential. And Dennis Banks, when I asked him to be our vice presidential candidate in a number of states, the first thing he said was, he said Indians were the first socialists. So I don't think you're going to have a hard problem in the Native community that is really standing between uh, their land, water, and the people, and the oil companies, gas companies. It, it's really a battle for that. Black Lives Matter, um, I think that the, the police repression, it, we, it's hard to imagine a society without armed police, if that's all you've known. I think that uh, black activists, fighters, the victims, the black community as a whole, Latinos as well, feel very much that the police more and more are the enemy. But to go from there to seeing it as a problem of the system, I think that there's, a, there's more progressive elements that express that. And I think you're finding a hearing. But it's all, this is all work. This is all work and I'm just touch on a couple of issues that you were asking me on a pretty broad question. I do think from the anti-globalization movement to now, we've progressed a great deal. That people are now starting to see and say socialism, planned economy. Um, we in the progressive movement, the left movement can say that, but I think we're getting a hearing for it. Yes, indeed. Okay, um, we're just about out of time, but I want to give you a chance to tell people how they can get involved, how they can follow your work, how they can follow the campaign, uh, where do they want to go, what websites, Twitter, Facebook, and so forth. So go ahead. Oh, thank you so much. Well, the, the main source that they can link into other information is GloriaLarivaForPresident.com. Four is a number. And my name is Gloria, and then L-A-R-I-V as in Victor A, Gloria Lariva for President.com. You can get Eugene Perrier's information, uh, Dennis Banks, and find out how to get involved with us. You can vote for us in California, Iowa, Vermont, Louisiana, New Mexico, Colorado, Washington State, hopefully Florida. But there are a number of write-ins in different states, New York, Maryland, uh, North Dakota, um, Montana, Kansas and other places as well. I can't name them all. Uh, the Twitter is Vote PSL, and um, the Facebook is at PSL Web. 
Thank you so much, Eric. I, I really appreciate talking with you. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you for all your good work, and I'm sure I will see you again next time we got to face down the right-wing Venezuelans at the UN, and uh, anything else that, that we need to be doing. Um, and again, uh, listeners, I would also urge you, if I could, go back and listen to my conversation with Eugene a few months ago. That was also a really good one, to get a sense of just how strong uh, the PSL ticket is, just how strong Gloria and Eugene are on these issues, uh, their track record, their ability to, you know, put this information together. Um, I certainly have a tremendous amount of respect for them and for the work they do. Gloria, thank you again for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Eric. Listeners, thank you as always. Speak to you again next week.